Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 51, Questions and Answers, part two. I hope you enjoyed the first Q&A episode, and there are some fantastic questions that are going to be explored in this episode. So, what are we going to explore in part two? Well, we'll be covering why the French revolutionaries didn't take more inspiration from the American Constitution. We'll be exploring possible ways for a more moderate revolution to succeed, and we'll be discussing how support for the revolution changed over time. We'll also be getting into how the new regime funded itself. It was bankrupt after all, as well as selecting actors for a hypothetical French Revolution TV show. Also, I have some exciting news. Grey History recently had its 300,000th download, and alongside this, we also cracked the top 100 history podcasts in the United States for the very first time. Thank you to everyone who has helped make this possible, whether it's supporting the show on Patreon, telling friends and family about the podcast, or assisting Grey History in any other way. I do plan to celebrate this alongside the release of the next bonus episode, so keep your eyes open for news on that front. Speaking of the next bonus episode, patrons with early access already have it waiting for them right now. The second episode on our series on the Corsican Revolution is absolutely fantastic, and the events it covers are absolutely chaotic, and you'll absolutely love the story of how Corsica manages to fight Italians, Germans, and the French in just a matter of years, while simultaneously going from a colony to a republic to a monarchy, then back to a republic. The two episodes on the Corsican Revolution are just some of the many fantastic bonus episodes available for the Patreon community, so do check them out as you don't want to miss them. Of course, Grey History is only possible thanks to the Patreon community that is keeping this show on the air. As this is not a main narrative episode, I'll save the individual thank yous to the newest members of the community until the next main episode. But until then, thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to support the ongoing creation of Grey History. Anyway, that's enough from me, so I hope you enjoy this Q&A episode, and let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 51, Questions and Answers. Part 2. Our first question comes from Michael. And Michael asks, why didn't the French revolutionaries pattern the French constitution after the American constitution, particularly since the French aided the American revolution and the resulting government? Why didn't the French create an executive branch, for example, with a president chosen by the people via the public vote? The French king could have been a candidate. Well, thank you, Michael, for your question, and thank you for your support of the show. So, Why didn't the French copy more of the American system? Well, let's start by focusing on the presidency, and then we'll expand from there. And just for note, I will be talking about the Constitution of 1791 here, 
the constitution that had been demanded, crafted, implemented, and finally overthrown in the first 50 episodes or so of the podcast. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that the idea of replacing the monarchy was just incomprehensible for the vast majority of the deputies of the National Assembly, or the body which had transformed itself from the Estates General into the National Constituent Assembly. These deputies, these were people that at their very core were monarchists. They didn't want to have an elected president, many of them were wary of how democratic the government should be, and many believed in the power, the prestige, and the wisdom of maintaining a king. And their wariness towards something like democratic participation and democratic government can be seen in the fact that ultimately it's these deputies that will adopt the distinction between active and passive citizens. You can also see the reluctance of these constitutional framers to depart from the monarchy in their actions after the flight to Varennes. Even some of the most radical deputies of that body were lining up not only behind the French throne, but Louis XVI himself. Even after the king had denounced the revolution, had attempted to flee the revolution, he still couldn't get these deputies to agree to dethronement let alone abolishing the position of a king altogether. So the fact of the matter is that these men were never going to introduce a system which abolished the position of the king. I mean, they couldn't even find the grounds to depose Louis XVI after he publicly repudiated the revolution and essentially embraced the prospect of civil war in an attempt to escape it. And indeed, you've got people like Robespierre who doesn't fully embrace republicanism until well after the flight to Varennes. Now I know that there were many listeners that found it humorous my comments that the proportion of republicans in the closet amongst the deputies of the National Assembly was incredibly small, but that is the fact of the matter. The vast majority of these deputies were monarchists, and so when these revolutionaries were drafting the constitution, their starting point was just so far away from having a presidency. They've never had a president, they don't want a president, and you see this in the debates around the king having a suspensive veto or an absolute veto. Sure, a small minority proposes no veto at all, but no one is walking around asking whether or not there should be a democratically elected executive branch. It's whether or not an unelected, hereditary executive should get the right to veto the wishes of the elected legislature. And maybe to expand that, a little bit further, the French wouldn't necessarily have wanted to follow the American example across the pond. And there's a few reasons for this. Firstly, you've got to remember that while the American Revolution was inspirational for the French, America, at this point in time, is a rather unusual experiment that's occurring some distance away. No one knows if it's going to succeed, certainly no one knows if this office of the presidency will last, There is just this group of foreign colonials embarking upon a gigantic, yes, uh, inspirational, but still a gigantic experiment. In the 1790s, it is not clear what constitutional lessons, if any, should be taken from the Americans. It may be that the whole thing falls over and America becomes an example of what not to do. And to that point, this American experiment is very, very new. George Washington enters office as the first president of the United States 
a week before the Estates General meets in mid-1789. Washington hadn't even completed his first term when the Constitution of 1791 was put into effect by the French. So while both the French and the Americans could draw inspiration from the same sources, from Montesquieu, for example, and his advocacy for the separation of powers, the American experiment was a combination of too new and too novel for the French revolutionaries really to draw any considerable influence from when it came to what they should do with their executive branch. And indeed, something that's rather interesting is that the French revolutionaries will never adopt a president for their executive branch. After the king, we'll see a whole range of systems, including the directory and the consulate, but always there is more than one individual in the executive branch of government all the way up until Napoleon's consolidation of power. One final thing worth noting is that in the constitutional arrangements that the French were creating, not only in 1791 but afterwards as well, things that we will be discussing shortly in the show, many deputies were trying to maintain the supremacy of the national government. The United States at its core was a federation of states uniting under a single federal government. The French were in a very different position. The French departments, and before them the French provinces, were not self-governing states. Many French deputies did not want the new departments to be considered as states, nor did they want them to be granted the same legal privileges as states which had voluntarily joined a greater union. As a result, large parts of the American constitution, not just those which relate to the executive branch, to the presidency, were also not relevant. The idea of codifying such power to the departments, like the idea of a presidency, was essentially dead on arrival. And you can absolutely guarantee that no one in France looked at something like the Electoral College and went, yeah, let's have that. In fact, I think it's rather telling that while aspects of the American system have inspired many constitutions around the world, some have been thoroughly rejected. And yes, I am looking at you, Electoral College. Anyway, I digress. In short, the French were starting from a completely different position when they attempted to craft their constitution. The existing society, the existing culture, the existing history was fundamentally different. And what that meant was that many of the policies pursued by the Americans were either unviable, undesirable, or in many cases, a combination of both from the perspective of the French revolutionaries in 1789. We'll shortly be exploring the constitution of 1793, and I can confirm already that it, like its predecessor, has many differences with the American constitution. And in fact, at one point in 1793, Robespierre will denounce a British plot to try to get the French system to become like the American system. So I think you'll be looking forward to us unpacking that when we get there. I hope that answers at least part of your question, and I will keep it in the back of my mind when we get around to exploring the multiple constitutional projects of 1793. Our next question comes from Tristan from the UK, and he asks as follows. The question I have for you is regarding the French public's fervour for the revolution at the time. Did support for the events of 1789, as well as the execution of the king, remain consistent for the entirety of the 1790s until Napoleon's rise? I ask this 
as it occurs to me that while the revolution was in many ways positively transformative for France, many must have felt that a grave mistake had been made as the relative stability of the monarchy had been replaced by the indecisiveness of the assembly and later the directorate. As such, then paving the way for the rise of Napoleon. What is your view on this? Thanks. Well, thank you for writing in, Tristan. And the short answer is no. Public support for the revolution and various aspects of the revolution changed over time. And it varied between regions, classes, estates, religions, a whole host of factors. And we're going to be seeing this shortly in the show. We're about to see many internal conflicts within France. We're about to see France be plunged into civil war. And so we're going to be getting into the detail about what was driving various resentments and attitudes towards the revolution and how they differed in various circumstances. Because there was nothing uniform about opposition to the revolution and the revolutionary government. And depending on particular circumstances, the reasons for uh, resentments towards the capital and the level of hostility could vary significantly. And if you think about what we've already covered in the show, we have already seen examples of where particular policies uh, drive down support for the revolution more broadly. Uh, For example, there's of course the civil constitution of the clergy and the national government's controversial pursuit of other religious reforms. The pursuit of non-constitutional priests, of refractory clergy, was supported in some regions, the crackdown that the government launched against them. But that same crackdown was vehemently resisted in other parts of the country. And it's these sorts of policies, along with a whole range of things, everything from how the revolution impacted trade to inflation to social structures, that all meant that support for the revolution was absolutely not static in nature and could fluctuate for many reasons and to extreme degrees. I mean, to touch on how the revolution impacted social structures, for example, as we covered in the episode extra, which focused on the legalization of divorce, in the 10 or so years that divorce, or essentially no-fault divorce, was legal during the revolutionary era, there were more than 30,000 divorces in France. Now, you can imagine that if uh, family units uh, were being disrupted by reforms, that did not exist in the Catholic old regime, that in and of itself might be reason for a, an angry and disgruntled husband to turn on the revolution, let alone the issues around inflation, the economy, uh, religious matters, etc., etc. So for a whole range of reasons, both larger societal reasons, as well as smaller, more personal individual circumstances, the support for the revolution could change dramatically. Now, I appreciate that so far I've been speaking in generalities, and so I thought it would be better to provide a specific example, one that touches on the stability of the old regime that you mentioned in your question. And so I do want to briefly dive into how the revolution impacted the port of La Rochelle. Now, La Rochelle is about halfway down the coast, the western coast of France, so it's an Atlantic port. And it was a rather large population centre, certainly for that region of France at the time. And because of the revolution's impact on French colonial possessions in the Caribbean, and by that I mean slave revolts, and because of the Revolutionary War more broadly, La Rochelle was decimated by the lack of foreign trade, which had previously been the backbone of the local community. It is, after all, an Atlantic port. Now, 
How devastated was the community? Well, in 1795, the municipality suspended its coach and mail services because it couldn't afford to buy feed for the horses. So it's pretty bad. The situation had been deteriorating for years, however. In 1792, only 25 ships had arrived in port, which is an average of about two a month. For a community dependent on trade, La Rochelle was soon on its knees. And the dramatic collapse in the local economy alone makes it very easy to see why many inhabitants might quickly sour on the revolution, even if they had initially welcomed it with enthusiasm. So, in short, the answer to your question is no. Public support was far from static, and as we make our way through the terror, I will be pointing out how authorities had to mandate all sorts of revolutionary actions which had been previously spontaneous thanks to the revolution's declining popularity. I also plan to unpack things like how fashion changes and how what is played at theatres change to again unpack just how popular sentiments changed over time and how the revolution's popularity evolved as the revolution progressed. I hope that answers your question and thank you for writing in. Our next question comes from Toby from Czechia. And Toby asks if there is anything the moderates could have done during the Legislative Assembly era to stop the rise of the Sankulots. Was there ever a chance for a stable France led by a moderate government? Or was the situation so unstable and polarised that things were always going to tip over one way or another? Well, thank you, Toby, for your question and thank you for your support of the show. By the time that the Legislative Assembly arrived, I think that there were two major problems that it faced that had already occurred. And those two things had occurred because of the decisions of the National Assembly which preceded it. Firstly, the Constitution of 1791 was a complete and utter mess. It pretty much guaranteed gridlock, instability, and agitation due to the way that the Constitution was designed. Every time the king and the assembly disagreed on something, the matter could possibly remain uh, in the public debate for an indefinite period of time and in an unresolved manner. And that's because of the way that the constitution was designed, there was no resolution mechanism. The assembly had no way to override the king, as there was no way to override the veto. And likewise, the king couldn't dissolve the assembly, presenting an alternative route to overcome an impasse. So the only thing that both sides could do is throw mud at each other for years and hope that new elections would either allow the policy to pass the suspensive veto or provide new deputies that didn't want to pursue the policy in question. Of course, what this meant in reality was gridlock. It meant bitter politics. It meant an inability to introduce contentious reforms precisely at the moment when France needed to reform to confront the numerous challenges it was facing. So in short, the constitution of 1791 was poorly designed, and there wasn't much that the deputies of the Legislative Assembly could do about that. Those decisions were already made. The other major problem that you have is the self-denying ordinance. This was the law which prevented members of the National Assembly from participating in the Legislative Assembly. And while originating from high-minded idealism, it was a pretty stupid move. What this meant is that there was no experienced hands on deck. 
no one who had experienced any of the difficulties of the last two years would have been able to deploy that knowledge in managing the affairs of government. Imagine if everyone elected to the United States Congress in 2024 had no experience in national government. Now, some of you may think, boy, that sounds like a breath of fresh air. It could not get any worse. But believe me, it can and it would. And the challenges that the US is facing today are nothing compared to the problems that the revolutionaries were facing as they were attempting to solidify the foundations of a whole new social and governmental structure. By preventing the only people with experience in national representative government from being able to assist in solidifying representative government, the deputies of the National Assembly had made, in my opinion, an absolutely huge mistake. So, to get to your question about is there anything that the Legislative Assembly could have done for the success of a moderate government, I would point out that there are two issues that had already taken place that had bound at least one hand behind the back of the deputies of the Legislative Assembly. But this is not all the fault of their predecessors. And if there was one thing that the deputies of the Legislative Assembly did that made the task of successfully implementing and solidifying a more moderate government almost impossible, it is, of course, their decision to go to war. The decision to go to war with Austria and Prussia is the biggest cause of instability, of fear, of paranoia, of suspicion, all the things that will repeatedly torment this revolution going forward. And sure, these things had been present already, but it's the war that really amplifies these menaces for the revolution. Now, could foreign war have been avoided? Maybe. There are many historians who would argue the answer is no. And while that may be the case, war may very well have come to France, but at least it would have been in a very different dynamic. The Girondins might not have been leading the calls for an aggressive war, which they started. You could see that the internal dynamics of the war would be entirely different if it was Austria or Prussia that declared war first, and France was always on the defensive. And you've got to remember that the decision to go to war in 1792 is a critical part of the fall of the monarchy. The Brunswick Manifesto, the belief in treason within the court, the September massacres, the bitter rivalry between the Girondins and the Montagnards, so much comes back to the French decision to go on the offensive. War is central to the revolution's radicalisation. Had the war been handled differently, not necessarily avoided entirely, but at least handled differently, that might have opened doors for new possibilities. Now sure, it would have made it very difficult for the moderate government to succeed, but perhaps the government that eventually replaces the monarchy, if that's what happens, is not as radical as the one that we see. So, do I think it's possible for a moderate government to establish itself? Perhaps. I don't like ever saying that things are impossible because we routinely see in history the impossible happen. But I do think that the predecessors of the Legislative Assembly essentially tied at least one hand behind their backs and made it certainly difficult to solidify any sort of moderate government. And then, when they went to war, well, that essentially made their task all the more challenging. So is it possible? Yes, I think it's possible. I don't think that the radicalism of Paris was always destined to take over the revolution in the way that we see. But it was certainly always going to be a hard needle to thread. 
Thank you for writing in and I hope that that answers your question. Grey History is only possible thanks to the support of the community. To access hours of exclusive bonus content, as well as receive an ad-free version of the podcast, you can support the show on Patreon and help keep Grey History on the air. The ongoing creation of Grey History is by no means guaranteed, and the best way to ensure that you can enjoy more Grey History, both immediately and in the future, is by supporting the show on Patreon. There are several amazing bonus episodes available to patrons of the show, including what is fast becoming a mini-series on the Corsican Revolution. The Corsican Revolution is a fascinating event, which inspired both the American and French revolutionaries. It's also one wild ride, featuring everything from invasions to assassinations, republican revolts and, against the odds, royalist revolutions. These episodes are just some of the great bonus content which is available exclusively to the Patreon community. So if you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it educational, if you find it entertaining, I need your help to keep retelling history in a way that isn't black and white. For as little as a $2 donation when main narrative episodes are released, you can do your part to support Grey History, and you can cancel any time if you stop listening to the show. So do your bit to help the podcast. And don't miss out on some amazing bonus episodes. Just Google Grey History Patreon or click the link in the show notes or on the website. Our next question comes from Leah. And Leah asks a series of questions which are financial or economic in nature. Initially, Leah asks, who paid for the Federation celebrations? I thought the country was bankrupt. She then asks who continued to support the king and his family before they were killed. And finally, Leah asks what kind of taxation system replaced the one of the old regime. She then points out that an episode on the economics of the revolution would be great, and I thoroughly agree. So, thank you Leah for your question, and let's start with the federations. When we're talking about the federations which occurred in 1789 and 1790, I think we should distinguish between the federations that we see in the provinces and in the countryside and the federation that we see in July 1790 on the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille in Paris, the festival of the federation or the Fête de la Fédération. And what we're going to do is initially I'll answer this question in relation to those in the countryside and then we will shift our attention to Paris. Now, unfortunately, There's not a lot of information on these festivals that happen in the countryside, at least in English. So I'm going to have to answer your questions with presumptions, and I'll explain my rationale behind them. And then if anyone actually listening, I know there's quite a few academics that listen to the show. If anyone actually has uh, expertise knowledge in this, do write in and then I can add that into this episode. So who do I suspect is paying for all these federations? Well, The first thing to note is that these federations were primarily ceremonies of National Guardsmen coming together from various nearby communities to swear oaths of mutual military support. The National Guardsmen themselves were of course volunteers, and that probably underpins a lot of how these ceremonies were being conducted. My suspicion is that in the revolutionary enthusiasm of the first year of the revolution, is that many of these celebrations would have been local inhabitants or would have seen local inhabitants more than happy to contribute 
to the cause. After all, a big reason why the Fête de la Fédération in Paris is such a success is as a result of volunteer labourers. Without those volunteers, the major celebration in the capital would not have been possible, and I suspect that a similar situation occurred outside of Paris. By that I mean volunteers out in the provinces were probably big contributors to actually getting these ceremonies up and running. And I don't just mean that from a labour perspective, because of course not every celebration had to build a huge amount of seating in the middle of Paris. It's not hard to imagine a local aristocrat or wealthy commoner wanting to demonstrate their support for the new regime by donating funds for ribbons or food supplies or the like. Likewise, it's easy to imagine locals opening their homes to allow visiting guardsmen to stay the night or help host dinners for those coming from a nearby village. This is exactly what happened in the capital, where the city's districts took turns organising and hosting meals for visiting guardsmen from across the nation when the Festival of the Federation occurred in July 1790. Now, I suspect there would have been some government funding for these provincial celebrations, but I'm not sure what support came from local municipalities and what support came from the federal government in Paris. Leah, of course, points out that the nation was bankrupt, but I would point out that even in bankruptcy, funds can be found for issues deemed important. And this was such an issue. The National Assembly spent money on distributing revolutionary prints and cartoons. It spent money creating artwork and sculptures. It certainly spent money hosting the massive Fête de la Fédération in Paris. All of this was, of course, an effort to bolster enthusiasm and support for the new regime. And as such, some deputies of the National Assembly would certainly have been open to the idea of funding events like these smaller provincial federations in an effort to pursue that objective. But as I said earlier, the information around these events is scarce. In fact, even the documentation around the Fête de la Fédération is scarce. So I can't actually say what support, if any, came from the capital. As an interesting aside, I have seen it proposed that perhaps the lack of documentation is reflective of the fact that the new regime was eager to portray these events as spontaneous in nature, springing from the people's enthusiasm for the revolution. As a result, the authorities didn't place a great emphasis on maintaining records relating to the funding and organising of these supposedly spontaneous events. Now, I'm not convinced by this myself, but it is an interesting proposal nonetheless. Before we move on to the Fête de la Fédération in Paris, it is noteworthy that just like the national government, the local municipal governments would also have had a reason to fund these celebrations. Remember, at their core, these federations started off as pledges of mutual military support between local communities. Their origin was in maintaining law and order and protecting the community in terms of both people and property. These federations come off the back of the Great Fear, where panic about foreign armies, royalist mercenaries, good-for-nothing brigands, had all caused a tremendous amount of damage and unrest. The mutual military assistance that these federations promised was seen as a way to counter both real and imagined menaces. I mean, if you look at one of the oaths of the federation in November 1789, the oath literally states that the guardsmen swear to remain forever united to ensure the circulation of grain, 
and to maintain the laws passed by the National Assembly. And if you go look at another oath from a different federation, then its contents was again quite similar, with guardsmen swearing to defend to their last breath the constitution of the state and the decrees of the National Assembly. So where am I going with all of this? Well, it was in the interests of the local government to secure their own safety, not just of their communities, but also of their own property. And so spending a little bit of money to help cement the military assistance of nearby communities was just a good pragmatic decision. Now, if we shift our focus to the tremendous Fête de la Fédération in Paris, here we do find an explicit example of the National Assembly paying for these celebrations. Remember, the Festival of the Federation, hosted in Paris on the anniversary of the fall of the Bastille, was, to put it in one word, huge. It's estimated that more than 40,000 delegates from the provinces attended the event, while perhaps 300,000 Parisians watched on. Obviously, to make this happen, the assembly coughed up money to host such a large spectacle. In times of bankruptcy, why did they do this? Well, again, from the perspective of the deputies, they wanted to create a grand ceremony which would reflect the prestige, the power, the popularity and the righteousness of the new order. Considering the old regime had been no stranger to elaborate spectacles, this meant that they were going to have to dig into their pockets. This was the first ceremony of the new order, and they didn't want it to be considered lacklustre when compared to those of the old regime. Furthermore, for a society steeped in the history of ancient Rome, the revolutionaries would have been keen to demonstrate their power by staging a large event on the magnitude of those conducted in antiquity. So, to wrap up, even though the nation was bankrupt, this was viewed as a priority by the deputies, as cementing support and fostering attachment to the new regime was critically important if this constitutional project was to last. As such, the money could be found for these federations. Now, if I move on to your second question around who supported the monarchs before they killed, I think this question could be answered in two different ways. The first relates to public support. And so to that, I say, we're about to explore the civil wars of France and there will be royalist elements of those civil wars. So I will answer that question in upcoming episodes. But just quickly, it's obvious that while many radicals to the left of the convention wouldn't be supporting the cause of the monarchy, there were many people, everyone from constitutional monarchists to arch-royalists to refractory priests and sincere Catholics, who had reasons to support the monarchs to some extent, and had reasons to support the institution of the monarchy even when Louis XVI had been executed. But given the fact that your other two questions are economic in nature, I think that your question might be relating to who financially supported the monarchs prior to their demise. And this has a very simple answer. Prior to being toppled, the royal family received financial support from the National Assembly. Obviously, it wasn't enough to continue the business-as-usual proceedings of Versailles, but after October 1789, the royal family wasn't in Versailles either. In the Tuileries Palace in Paris, the royals still lived quite well compared to their subjects, but the grandeur and extravagancies that we associate with the court had certainly been curtailed substantially. 
Once the king was in prison, he was guarded by the Paris municipal government, or the Paris Commune. And I don't know if the Commune received some sort of subsidy from the National Convention for their efforts, but it was the Commune that was calling the shots. That's part of the reason why Louis XVI had to keep asking the Commune to provide him more books during his time in prison. It's also why Louis and his family were locked up in the less than glamorous fortress turned prison called the Temple, rather than somewhere nicer like the Luxembourg Palace. The Commune insisted on the Temple, and as it was their responsibility for his care, it got its way. Now your final question relates to the taxation system, which replaced the ones of the old regime. Obviously, the French taxation system was a mess prior to the revolution, and taxation was a key point of tension for years leading up to the storming of the Bastille. Prior to the revolution, members of the first and second estates largely escaped many forms of taxation, and to make matters worse, the tax system was then warped by a whole range of bespoke exemptions for certain towns, cities and provinces. Furthermore, it wasn't just the government collecting taxes, with feudal lords and the Catholic Church also having their own rights to levy their own taxes. This is why it would be fair to describe France as having a range of incoherent tax policies rather than a tax system, as the word system implies that there was anything systematic about what was really a chaotic mess of revenue-raising measures. Now, the abolition of privileges by the National Assembly in August 1789 went a long way towards rationalising government and tax policies. Henceforth, only the state would raise taxes and everyone would be taxed. There would be no exemptions for the first two estates. With these decisions being made, the Assembly essentially had a free hand to create whatever policy it wanted. And with a desperate need to raise revenue, what exactly did the government choose to pursue? Well, there are four taxes that were introduced that are particularly worth noting, most of which were created by the National Assembly in the initial years of the Revolution. Interestingly, many of these taxes remained in place for a considerable period of time some of which were only overhauled in the early 20th century. In fact, it was partly the demands of World War I which helped to fundamentally alter the French tax system for the first time in more than 100 years. So, what were these four taxes? Let me start by issuing a quick caveat that I'm neither a French taxation expert nor a French speaker, and given the limited English sources on this specific area, there is possibly scope for an erroneous answer or two. But, from my understanding, these were the four taxes. Firstly, there was a tax on land. Secondly, there was a tax on movable property, and I'll explain what that meant in a moment. Thirdly, there was a tax on business and commercial activities. And then finally, there was a tax introduced on windows and doors. So, to unpack these a little further, people would pay taxes on the estimated rental value of their land. And in addition to that, people would pay taxes on movable or mobile property, which is a bit of a clumsy way of saying on everything except land or industry. In this category, people would pay taxes for each horse, for each carriage, for each servant, just to list a few examples. On top of these, 
There were taxes on businesses, so on commercial activities and industry and the like. And what tax assessors would do is that they would evaluate the rental value of the dwelling, stores or workshops of that business. These three taxes, of course, changed over time, but they were all introduced by the National Assembly. The fourth tax, worth noting, is the tax on windows and doors, but that wasn't actually introduced until 1798, so when the directory was in charge. Now, it is worth noting, or I think it would be interesting to note, that even with the introduction of these taxes, tax revenue made up an incredibly small amount of how the government actually funded itself during the first years of the revolution. The government essentially became almost wholly reliant on money creation, i.e. printing money, for the first years of the war. This, of course, didn't help inflation and the unrest associated with it, and we will be covering that in future episodes. But yes, even with the introduction of these taxes, it actually took a considerable amount of time before reasonable tax revenue actually started entering government coffers. I hope that answers your question, Leah, and thank you for writing in. Our next and final question comes from Christian, who has a fun question for us to end on. Hello, everybody. This is Christian from Oregon in the West Coast of the United States. So happy to be here, and I love this show. Anyways, my question is a little bit of a silly one. If you were in charge of making a movie about the revolution, who would you have do it? Would it be animated? Would it be live action? Who would your main character be? And for that matter, who would you have play the main character? Anyways, again, love this podcast, all the work you put into it. And I hope you have a great 2023. Thank you, Christian, for your question. And thank you for your support of the show. Now, I've made no secret of the fact that I think HBO is missing out on some serious dollary dues by the fact that they have not created a 10-season epic on the French Revolution, and so I will happily uh, play this role of casting actors into some lead parts. I will issue a disclaimer, though, that I am a little illiterate when it comes to actors and movies. I'm very good with history and geography on the pub trivia team but uh, music and film, not my forte. And out of sympathy for people that are in a similar position to me, if I name an actor that I don't think is particularly well-known, if they haven't won an Oscar or the like, then I might also name other roles that they might know that actor to be in. So, for example, when I think about who I would get to play Lafayette, Uh, He would need to lose some of the muscle, but uh, Henry Cavill, who is the lead in Witcher, I think he would do quite a good job. And I am now just going to uh, kind of spontaneously go through my list. So to kick us off with the answer that I probably have like the the highest confidence in, I think this actor would really do a really good job of Saint-Just is Timothy Chalamet, who is the lead actor in Dune. Uh, he's actually in several things, but I think he would really be able to pull off a, a, a Saint-Just vibe. If I think about Louis XVI, then maybe like a young, fatter Tom Hanks, perhaps. Maybe a Bradley Cooper, I'm not sure. Uh, but I definitely want, uh, in my version of this story anyway, uh, a Louis XVI that is uh, frustrating in some ways, but sympathetic in others. And I think a Bradley Cooper or a Tom Hanks could could do that. Uh, for Mirabeau, you want someone 
who really can command the presence in a room and who really is an is an oratory uh genius someone who can someone who is just all engrossing when you watch them act and so the name that comes up for me for Mirabeau is someone like Anthony Hopkins I would also potentially trial someone like Andy Circus I'm probably butchering that surname for those people that that name does not ring a bell he's the actor for Gollum in Lord of the Rings but he has recently been in Andor, which is the new Star Wars TV series, which is incredibly good and exceptionally well-written and really puts the rings of power to shame. So for Mirabeau, I want someone who can really command a room, and I think that's a really important role, especially if you were doing a TV series and and you're going to have quite a bit of time on the initial years of the revolution, and I think that Anthony Hopkins or uh, Andy Serkis would do a great job. For Marat, I've got two suggestions, one that I think is less controversial than the other. Uh, the less controversial one, I could see Tom Hiddleston doing a decent job there, who plays Loki in the Marvel series. The more controversial suggestion, but he is an exceptional method actor, and I think for Marat, you want someone who's really good at method acting. And my more controversial suggestion there might be someone like Christian Bale. For Camille Demelar, I think Adam Driver, who plays Kylo Ren in the newer Star Wars trilogy. He's also in a, a range of movies at the moment. I think he's just got the look um, for a Camille Demelar. So I'd have a high confidence casting him into that role. And then finally, for the role of Marie Antoinette, it's my show, so it's my rules, and I'd like to cast an Aussie. So I would say Margot Robbie for that role there. Those are the initial names that come to mind. I don't have a good option yet for Robespierre. So if anyone listening does think that they know who should play Robespierre or any other leading figure in the revolution, maybe write in and I will put the best suggestions onto uh, the social media feeds, uh, maybe with photos of the individuals and then their historic counterpart. So thank you, Christian, for your question. And hopefully the movers and shakers at HBO are listening to this and a 10-season French Revolution epic is on the way. And yes, I can confirm now that my hand is in the air and I do volunteer as a consultant for the show. Anyway, thank you for your question and thank you to everyone who has written in questions for these last two Q&A episodes. Thank you for listening to episode 51, Questions and Answers, part 2. I hope you enjoyed these Q&A episodes, and there are some fantastic main narrative episodes coming your way. The next episode will focus on the advance of France, and you're going to love it. A reminder that the Corsican Revolution, part 2, is already available for those patrons with early access, as is the joint episode with the American Revolution podcast, on the French intervention in the American Revolutionary War. If you're enjoying Grey History, the best way to access more Grey History and to ensure more Grey History in the future is by supporting the show on Patreon. There's links in the show notes, on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. As always, thank you so much to all the patrons of the show for helping to keep Grey History on the air. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.